Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to discuss cinema. Or moving pictures. Motion <laughs> or, pictures. Yeah. Uh, dot MP4s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've got a few digital releases across Netflix and uh, the nebulous form of wholesale digital release to discuss. Because on Amazon, BFI, take your pick. Yeah. What do you want? Um, Brand of choice. <laughs> What team do you support? Who do you pay your tithe to? Uh, We're going to talk Bezor, about Lord Bezos or Lord, or Lord the the two the one finger. It could be you with the smiley face on it. We're going to talk about Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. We're going to talk about Eurovision's Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, <laughs> and uh, Thomas Clay's Fanny Light Delivered. All films that we may have gone to see in the cinema, but we can't. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I think there's talk of screening The Five Bloods in chain cinemas next month. Great. We're programming it. But there's so many films that they can pick from when they open the cinemas this week. Yeah, I mean, you're looking forward to seeing Todd Haynes' February release, Dark Waters, aren't you? Yeah, I've been waiting for a chance to see it in the cinema. I missed all the, like, 11am, like, 1pm screenings, like, just before lockdown. But I do really want to see it, and yeah. I don't think there's going to be anyone else at the screening. Yeah, personally, I don't, I, I don't know. I do view the reopening of cinemas with marked scepticism. Indeed, cynicism. Uh, you know, it is, <laughs> it is these, uh, you know, global corporation chains, you know, your Odeons, your Cineworlds that are like gagging at the bit to reopen. I don't know. I don't think that their staff will have received sufficient reassurances about the sort of, Safety, safety, safety of that. Yeah, I just I, remains to be seen. Seems a bit. The labour question, I guess, is at the or should be at the forefront. I don't know if I'm scabbing or not. I don't know if I'm going to go or not. It is deep. It's not the independent cinema. It's not the sort of more direct like employer-employee relationships mm. who are putting their workers out. Yeah, absolutely. Away, who yeah. are desperate to like get the economy cracking again. Yeah. I don't think they're going to make that much money anyway until they're screening Mulan like 35 times a day or whatever yeah for sure I mean I guess the idea is they'll do like staggered screen times yeah. as one of many like health and safety precautions but I don't know we won't be going to the close up cinema anytime soon nah. Nah. ICA2 these kinds of rooms I mean it's a nice idea in theory isn't it cinema's coming back I guess <laughs> Um, there's nothing else to see know. what is there to see I'm not going to go see Inception 10th anniversary well yeah I mean the press the press releases are all like we welcome you to our screens to watch Tenet and Mulan we're back to bring you what you need that's and that's the messaging would you like jalapenos on your nachos sir as we'll get into there are lots of films coming out <laughs> you know we've still been like in- managing to engage even if we haven't been putting out podcasts with like films pretty consistently actually over the last few weeks, months. We've been watching heaps of classic films for a forthcoming research project. Yeah. Perfect excuse. Perfect time to do it. <laughs> for sure. We were saying there's no good time to make a John Ford episode, but there's no good time to binge 40 films from one filmmaker or oh whatever. Yeah. Let's get into it, man. We're now going to talk about one of the biggest films of the summer straight cinema or no cinema 
everyone watched it. Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, directed by Netflix. Yeah, I think it was originally meant to coincide with the Eurovision Song Contest 2020, an event tragically cancelled on account of the global pandemic that we're, you know, this awful virus experiencing. Um, <laughs> and the, it was produced by Eurovision as well, right? I mean, it seemed like a sort of real endorsement of the Eurovision lifestyle. Something which I am in the huge minority in this country by thinking is utter shite. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp as well, man. I feel like everyone in my household, though, uh, loves it. I don't know what it is about the specific flavour of the Eurovision pageantry that just, like, triggers people on, like, a primal level. Um, I guess that's something that Will Ferrell's, like, tapping into with this with this film, with you this know, the romance of Eurovision. <laughs> yes, for sure. I'm inundated with shite music, like, in my life anyway. I don't need to <laughs> You're listening on... to film. <laughs> Will Ferrell plays, like, a Icelandic dude whose life dream is to perform in the Eurovision Song Contest inspired by ABBA. He has the classic moment when he hears Waterloo on TV for the first time and it changes his life, opens his eyes. Opens the eyes of Lars Eriksson, <laughs> yeah. son of Eric, played by Pierce Brosnan, in a career best performance. <laughs> he was fantastic in this film. He reminded me of like Henry Fonda playing Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, he really doesn't actually have. He must have about five lines in this film. Yeah, but I, he is sort of like the emotional uh, linchpin. Also, I guess it's all about like Will Ferrell, like. You know, the conflict, as well as, like, the sort of international uh, conflict of the Eurovision Song Contest is, like, him trying to win the approval of his dad. And uh, Rachel McAdams, who plays his best friend, Sigrid, Eric's daughter, who may or not... that There's this weird, like... Yeah, there's, like... Throughout a... the film, they're, like, making jokes, suggesting, like, Icelandic people are somewhat inbred and, like... Yeah, They may sure. or may not be related. For sure, there's all, I guess there's also like a fantasy element as well, where like elves live and they like believe in elves and they uh, live in and operate. Yeah, you know, in the countryside or whatever. I wish there were more elves in these kind of films, anyway. So, um, you were com- situates me comparing this to like you know historical Icelandic sagas, and I guess it's sort of it sort of is like that, really. <laughs> I had to read the saga of Gisli. For a course that I did really badly in. Great. But, and I really hated it actually. <laughs> yeah, I guess I like super formulaic, like heroic. Yeah. Like panjirics, basically. For sure. Rachel McAdams is great in it. She was great in a game night, a comedy from a few years ago. Like, oh, we were talking about how there are like no good comedies ed- anymore. Comedy as a genre I, is totally yeah. dead. And I, I've got to say, I didn't find this film particularly funny, really. There are a few bits, but um, game night. Is, is really good and Rachel McAdams' performance in this is, you know. I don't want to be someone who says like, oh yeah, Tony Erdman was like the last good comedy film I saw or whatever. Game Night was really good. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, she is really good in this. She commits and she has some jokes lines. Uh, for sure. It is like a musical, you know, and uh, I don't know. It's not often I think I wish I was watching Tommy, but <laughs> there it is. <laughs> this was certainly one of those occasions. Ah, I don't know. It's not even like good Euro pop. Like I've got an accordion sitting next to me. It's not even like good Euro trash that they like sort of mock or like integrate into it. It's like 
the like most globalized form of like ugh. I don't want to get too into the the music of this film or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I like the, what's the, the ding point? dong song that was pretty jokes though. I thought, but yeah, then yeah, that was too good for Eurovision. That's you know? just a joker, you know. The yokels of Iceland or whatever. Yeah, but I mean, it was the the biggest banger of the film for me. I feel for sure. The Eurovision song contest is set in Edinburgh, shot in like it's like some French new wave, like super romantic. Jacques Demi, inter- yeah, yeah, interpretation yeah. of. Edinburgh. It's hard to make that place not look gorgeous, you know. For sure. Good times. I like how they put the SECC Hydro Arena from by the river in Glasgow just down the middle of this like small street on the end of Northbridge. <laughs> it's cool. I, maybe that's why I like the film. I don't know. Edinburgh is a fine, fine place. I like this more than either Filth or Sunshine on Leith or definitely Train Spotting 2. <laughs> Oh, I thought sure. it was a good time. Good time in the cinema. Good time in Edinburgh slash Glasgow. A lot of uh, yeah, a lot of that. It doesn't, but it should have taken place in like where Devolved Scotland won the yeah, great won the thing. Or maybe if we if the UK did win the Eurovision Song Contest, we would have to put it in Scotland. Yeah, I mean there are jokes about the sort of politics of the Eurovision in this and like how the sort of hate for Britain is like manifested on like a sort of cultural level right through on. like the really protracted voting system of uh of the eurovision song contest maybe it's trying to um illustrate something about the the vampires in brussels no it's not <laughs> of course it's not but i guess yeah they it's do a- make they do make jokes about how everyone votes the same way in eurovision a mad voting phenomenon that i guess does belie other things you know sure. does take on a greater significance but also whatever the tunes are all as bad as each other you know yeah and there are so many musical numbers in this um dan stevens plays like the i guess like one of the main secondary characters this like russian performer who like he's like the love rival as well um getting in the way of the incestuous relationship between will ferrell and rachel mcadams characters the statues in his like palatial yard Mm -hmm. with like the like the grecan statues with like big digs you know it's funny <laughs> yeah it's straight funny i don't m- maybe in terms of like the dialogue though it doesn't compare to like you know stepbrothers right seminal like will ferrell comedies like sure it's just of course like, but i mean the guy's made a lot of trash he's made is he's deep into his career at this point i didn't like it as much as holmes and watson from last year which i thought was pretty jokes to be honest uh, a good time at the at the cinema but maybe if i'd seen this in the cinema which i I may, I may well <laughs> Mo- have done. Movie film of the week. <laughs> yeah. Like, you think, yeah. I had a few complaints, to be yeah. honest, you know. Despite hating the farce that is the Eurovision Song Contest. Mm. Pff, hey, on Netflix, once again. Yeah, I feel, I mean, I get the impression that as far as, like, shitty comedies go, people have, like, accepted it. Shan enjoyed it. It's a bit long. Yeah, it is quite long. It's <laughs> over two hours, like, it's it's two hours long. Epic Icelandic saga. Yeah. Oh, there's another sort of homage to European culture from Mr. Will Ferrell by casting Jamie, uh, what's his name, Jamie Dimitri yeah. and uh, his sister Natasha Dimitri, who people probably mainly know from the latter, mainly from what we do in Shadows, but they're both in the classic uh, Channel 4 sitcom Staff Let's Flats. 
she did a really good one-off like sketch show pilot with her friend from Statlitz Platz called Ellie and Natasha. That was Jogs as well. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, I'll um, have to check it out. Yeah, but I mean, such a perfunctory appearance that it had to be in there just to make people go, oh, hell yeah. Well, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, the package deal is great, though. I love Jamie Dimitri. He's fantastic. And to see them both in a, in a film like this was a... Uh, one of many small raising moments. Who <laughs> else? <laughs> Surely there were other jobs cameos. Yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of the Eurovision Song Contest, like, oh, yeah, you know, there's like a really swollen sequence in the middle where they're like at this house party and they're like, like the why don't we sing a famous pop song all together? Taking turns looking into this fourth wall. Uh, <laughs> It's just like the end of Inland Empire. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I didn't really enjoy that sequence. I felt like the whole film was the sort of extension of that sequence. I liked it when he was slewing the Americans, though, at the end. He was, he was really, really dissing them. That was good. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's more, like, archetypal I couldn't, I couldn't, this film dialogue humour, you know. So sure. It was, like, generally absent. I guess this film felt a lot more scripted than your usual one, which is, like, heavily reliant on, like, a lot of ad-libbing. For sure. Where they shoot them for just like hours. For sure. I guess this they had so much to get through in terms of plot and storytelling in this film. Maybe that's why it's so long or whatever. But Will Ferrell's not lazy. Maybe getting old, but <laughs> he's still got some uh, funny looks in his facial arsenal. <laughs> the way that they sort of... I was reading about how they like blended like Rachel McAdams's like singing performance with like a professional. Oh yeah, pop it feels singer. like very jarring when you when you watch it. Yeah, but then like Will Ferrell just has his like weird. He I guess he hits the notes right or whatever, but it's his pronunciations. He just has them down pat, mm. which is a bizarre experience I think compared to a lot of musicals and stuff like that, where his voice has so much character to it. Mm. You'd never get that at Eurovision. Yeah, and sure. I, the bit I when it's like, oh my god, she started singing in Icelandic, and everyone's like, shocked. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, the denouement of the film then is like, there, there's like a conflict. Like, oh, do we like sing this like amped up, like commercialized version of like the song that we like entered with? Ultimately, they sing like sort of tender, nationalistic um, <laughs> tribute that you know they get disqual- they get disqualified. <laughs> but like um you know it's like a victory for like artistic integrity which is just so ironic like for for what like the film like overly celebrates you know sure but it also suggests that that their best performances are like in this like bar to the same 30 people like every day day in day out in the sort of charismaki-esque musical sequence yeah for sure with this like love-hate relationship with like the crowd as well where yeah. like you know, they're so, like, reliant on them as, like, a source of, like, <laughs> entertainment and culture while they also, like, hate them. <laughs> sure. But love them. <laughs> sure. That's all they got, I yeah. guess. I mean, it's an, it is an entertaining film. And I, it sticks like, it to so those, like, man. awful financialists who ruined the, the Icelandic economy, you know? Yeah, true. Yeah, it does have, like, an economic thesis. But... <laughs> I just don't feel like we get, like, what? it's so nebulous. <laughs> yeah, there's a bad money guy. Film but... of the week. <laughs> Film of the summer. Yeah, there's a bad money guy. <laughs> I guess that's one of the three facts about Iceland that people around the world know. 
for sure. Yeah, and they use <laughs> both Agatis, water, whatever, and the one from the planet Earth, the two most bait Sigur Ross songs on the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. At the two most like <laughs> oh, emotional God. moments of the film, which I oh. guess that's almost like a throwback at this stage, you know, that's so that's so dated yeah yeah <laughs> for sure oh yeah when i when it came i hadn't heard it for like you thought what, you were ten, a decade back in or something again. Yeah, yeah yeah give me the ding dong song who else i like moom and i like uh fm belfast they're cool fm belfast would make a great eurovision song but maybe they're too good for eurovision they're like a icelandic like i guess they're like lost campesinos or something like cool. that they're cool check them out bait film David Dobkin, the auteur behind Shanghai Nights and Wedding Crashes. Uh, this is up there, you know. Yeah. I think I preferred this to either of those films. It wasn't like as <laughs> racist. Or, well, I guess it. Yeah, God. Uh, maybe the David Dobkin deep dives coming up. The title's already there, isn't it? <laughs> I was surprised to look at the credits of the cinematographer Danny Cohen, who started out making like these like pulpy British films, like. Uh, Dead Man Shoes, but then like The King's Speech. He did a Florence Foster Jenkins, which is about as far off from Dead Man Shoes as you can get, really. Sure. I guess that's just the trajectory of working in British film or whatever, getting the best paid jobs in a way. Dead Man Shoes and This Is England are great, though. Mm. And they have more of a visual. Actually, no, I wouldn't even say that, you know. A couple of nice compositions in this film. The light <laughs> in Edinburgh is hard to capture, you know, and they had, <laughs> it had that. <laughs> Curious quality. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I would not give this film (laughs) nil point. I think compared to the other sort of like classic text on the Eurovision Song Contest written by the disgusting, awful transphobe Graham Linehan, the My Lovely Horse, Father Ted episode, right? Where the priests rip off like the Icelandic band's B-side. Yeah, great. Maybe that's got more to say about the actual style of Eurovision music than this where their song is good, right? That's the thing. There was no, like, Vox Lux, like, her smell, like, problem with the music in this film. It wasn't, like, a part of what it was trying to tell you. It's just, like, oh, yeah. It's not, like, in question whether they're good at music or not. Right. Just, like, whether they can be, like, internationally commodified. But there were no jokes in the, the song. It wasn't, like, pop star or whatever. It's, like, the music was, like, separate to the comedy. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, just a vehicle for the tunes. Was open, maybe it would be like a Greatest Showman style. I think it would like, have been huge. Where they're going to screen it every year. Yeah. People start singing along to the tunes. Oh my God. So now we're going to talk about Spike Lee's new film, uh, The Five Bloods, about four black Vietnam vets who go back to uh, sort of like peacefully recover the body of their lost commander played in flashback by Chadwick Boseman Um, but also it manages to like recover like a lost payload of gold bars destined for Vietnamese American collaborators Uh, so yeah it does quite a lot super entertaining film as well as like having like a lot to say politically extremely polemical and didactic throughout through like the dialogue but also use of like documentary footage like montage as you see like across all his films really don't wish we'd got to see it in cinema absolutely it does have the feel of it was definitely one of the more 
anticipated films. I think it was going to have a big premiere at Cannes or whatever before they delayed that. Yeah. On the slate for the summer, I guess it was a huge thing. Spike Lee's first film after winning a, winning his first Oscar. Yeah, he said he wanted like a Irishman-style like cinematic dis- distribution um, as far as like, you know, Netflix films. Sure. Go. It would have been good, but is whatever size screen you see it on it's an epic story writ large you know um i guess the irishman is a point of comparison for this film in a way that it uses like or it doesn't use this like de-aging process right it has like sequences of like these dudes who are all in their like late 60s 70s playing their like former selves um not their former selves at all they're playing themselves (laughs) They're like their younger selves. Yeah, they're like old in their memory, which like seems really poetical. That was my reading of it. Absolutely. Um, But then, I I mean, I think it was primarily for like economic and practical reasons that they uh, didn't do it. Like Spike, you know, they Spike wasn't working with like a a crazy budget for this. Um, You know, they shot it in locate on location in like Thailand and Mm -hmm. um, a a handful of uh, like. Southeast Asian... Uh, Ho Chi Minh City. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely one of the the most epic productions of his career. I guess a com- not a comparatively massive budget for a Netflix film, but huge story to tell, you know? This is a real... This is one of the first times, if not the first time, that the, like, the black experience of like American soldiers in Vietnam is like foregrounded. This is what the film's about. Um, I've listened to a lot of interesting... I mean, Spike Lee's always a, a great interview, and like, and he does consider this film like from the conception well he does consider the film as a as a corrective um to tell a story untold which is really interesting because this film was like originally going to be an oliver stone film and not about four black people for sure yeah he got the script got the script and completely switched it up um i guess it was just going to be what treasure of the sierra madre in vietnam or like more like the Expendables or something like that. For sure. I mean, yeah. Just I guess on on that note, like it it is like a real classic like adventure story, veering towards exploitation at points. But like you know, especially from the second half on, there's like a big like pulpy turn where it becomes like just like flat out like adventure, like very dramatic. So I was sold on it from the beginning anyway. But like the gold has that like added cgi quality to it to make it look (laughs) different like stroheim painting the gold frames or whatever and painting the frames in greed or whatever for sure otherwise the film does sort of look like a netflix film i would say with the color palette and like the like really shallow focus on like dialogue scenes and stuff like that but maybe that's just through what it looks like in the app yeah uh, (laughs) there are loads of visual um sort of variations throughout like aspect ratio shifts yes. to represent like uh like different times uh and like times within times <laughs> it's a very like meta and like reflexive film throughout i guess because it's set in the present but like so much of it is governed by like what we see in the in the flashbacks and how those experience have conditioned like the characters in in their present there's one scene where they find out about the Martin Luther King assassination in 1968, 
when they're out there and you know at the time america was like erupting there were like protests in every city and stuff like that but they have a very like divorced experience they've just kind of got to reckon with it between themselves i think that's what the whole film's about for me like that yeah. like inherent like contradiction like ontic contradiction where like they are serving which is like a hallmark of like to citizenship but like being you know not expect the film starts with this clip of muhammad ali um during the vietnam war like rejecting it yeah. rejecting an imperialist war and service in it because like domestically he as a black man is like you know yeah, he says like you. they've ne- you know the vietnamese people have never lynched me um and you know that that like irony is you know conditions the whole the whole film especially in the characterizations because you know delroy lindo's character uh, probably the most like uh praised performance in the film i guess because it's such a complex character and it's a very intense performance he plays like a sort of reactionary a conservative trump supporter he wears a maga hat and he's brought his son along who he despises and he's just uh his son played by jonathan majors from the last black man in san francisco yeah he is it's just like a very racked performance you know like every scene he has like a sort of moment like an explosion and then by the end you're alone with him and he gets like he has like a soliloquy yeah, where he talks yeah. about how like he was both like traumatized by being at war and then like traumatized by like coming home to america and like everyone in the country hating him or whatever resenting or for sure i mean way. i think that's like a pretty also a pretty universal experience of like uh vietnam uh vietnam war veterans in general because you know it's so like widely maligned by the public by the time it finished mm-hmm. um so i think it's like you know obviously reflecting like a broader veteran experience but then the like i guess the tragedy of it personally i'm never sympathetic towards soldier in imperial war but the tragedy of it is compounded by you know the disenfranchisement and like the alienation at, at home on like racial grounds sorry I, sh- I should have said this earlier but just in terms of like that that matter of like representation and like how it's so important to like show these stories on film film is such a ubiquitous way of like people engaging with history and people's um, imagination um, of well, well exactly man history history wars, like, is how we imagine things yeah. and how they're represented on screen is so important this obviously rec- is a corrective to vietnam war films I get, I, to be fair, for me, Apocalypse Now is like the one. It's referenced multiple times it has in this like film. Deliberate and visual like has, sampling and referencing in this film. Yeah, yeah. That, that film, you know, Larry Fishburne, as he was mm-hmm. credited then, and the platoon or whatever is like multiracial. But I guess there are a bunch of Vietnam War films that are like extremely like myopic. That question of representation, though, across historical wars, specifically World War II, um, he, Spike, in 2008, made this film, Miracle at St. Anna, about a black regiment operating in Italy during, um, you know, in in fascist Italy, interacting with, like, partisans and, like, Nazis. Um, Mad film, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a crazy film. Um, Really, like, widely rejected at the time, a critical flop, um, a box office flop, um, but I mean, exactly in the vein of like, 
traditional war films like Saving Private Ryan. It feels Ryan. exactly like Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, revel in the sort of... Sentimentality of war. Or... Yeah, and the patriotism, which yeah. is obviously exclusionary in in many ways. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Miracle St. Anna is, definitely fits within that. Also, the scene where they hear in The Five Bloods the broadcast saying... Um, mm-hmm. a, this is like a real radio personality in, in um, Vietnam. Um, Hanoi, Hanoi Hanna. Yeah. Um, Radio inspiration. And she's like, you know, listen to me, my brothers. They... Telling the stuff they can't hear themselves. Yeah, away. for sure. Um, and I guess leading to a moment of like self-determination. But in Miracle at St. Anna, you have the exact same scene where the the black regiment, they're like advancing. And then from a like Nazi truck, they like brought like amplify this like Nazi spokeswoman being like Negro soldier, like at home you are. It's the it's the same thing. Like the the irony of like this experience is like well, the exact same in both, which is sad because obviously, and it also like brings it up to the present as well because this film, I guess, came at like an extremely timely moment. the The Black Lives Matter footage that ends this film mm-hmm. was shot like before, like except Spike oh, yeah. Lee said it was like the yeah, first yeah. thing they shot. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I guess it comes as like a sort of like punch at the end that like compounds like the the like historical fight. Yeah, there's um, a huge sense of urgency. Like even though it's a film about a war that took place 50 years ago, even but I guess the fact that there's so many unexploded landmines in this film and the portrayal of trauma, you know, no wars end. For and... sure. I mean, uh, yeah. Let, let's face it. The representation of the Vietnamese in this film is. I think not great at all, sure. really. It represents Vietnam as, like, you know, anarchy, basically, uh, <laughs> on some, like, Indiana Jones level, you know. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's sort of besides the point. <laughs> I mean, it's not, like... I don't think it's critical enough of the Imperial... He could, he couldn't... Imperial he didn't make the Clint Eastwood yeah. Vietnam film where you show the Americans and then the Vietnamese and make them back-to-back. Yeah, I guess there's, like, an <laughs> apocryphal point that, like... Um, Spike made Miracle at St. Anna as, like, a response to, um, what's it called? Flags of Our Fathers. Yeah, and the Battle of Iwo Jima. Or at least that's how it was conceived um, in, like, the PR surrounding the But, I mean, this, that's, that's, it was obviously, like, in development for ages before that. They, they optioned the of course, book, and it was like, a huge... five years before it came out. But, you know, it's, it doesn't defeat the point that, like, these films are, like, important. <laughs> for sure, like, Spike Lee, I think he's under rated in a sense where he people consider him like a sellout all the time for making i the, think he is like for making a, the jordan yeah sure, sure like sure. a capitalist like i think that's always been tied to like his like project but whatever his most successful film is about how like some new york banks are like founded with like nazi blood money or whatever the inside man i'm talking about or, oh is that the concept 100 percent. yeah wow. yeah yeah um I haven't seen that i think all his films are like mad deliberate like even despite being like dealing with like corporations and stuff like that. And like, even though I think his films have been like seriously under budgeted and like you hear about like how much he struggled to be the director of Malcolm X. Definitely. And now how in that period he was literally going, going round to his peers hat in hand, you know, yeah. asking for that hundred K check from, from like Jordan or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's mad. That's mad that that's, you know. And, and you know, he said that the, the reason he made The Five Bloods with Netflix is because no other studio would touch it. That's ridiculous. It is outrageous. And it's an important story to tell. And I feel like that 
it's always communicated like how serious the function of storytelling is in Spike Lee films compared to anyone making blockbusters these days. For sure. Action for sure. Films. Yeah, I mean, look, he he's like a classic hotel in that, like across all these genres, like there's the voice, there's like the polemic and like it comes through on like a like meta historical level as well with this use of montage, which can be like, you know, I've, I've read some criticisms of the five bloods saying like if, you know, showing like war crimes in Vietnam bordering on like fetishization, sure. lingering on these atrocities in general. And, and you know what, personally, like uh, the film ends with a quote from uh, Martin Luther King, which I didn't think it was like a successful use of like the montage like effect that he generally uses. Cause I don't, even though it was like appropriate, it just seemed like he's got the clips that he wants to incorporate. There's a lot to celebrate about this film, I think. It was very impressive, despite having certain questionable approaches to imperialism. But I guess I understood that as, like, they were trying to find their own motivations within the war and this, like, American gold that that's going to be relief to, like, collaborators is, like, visualised as some form of, like, economic reparations or whatever. Yeah. That's why they're going back. And, like, the the money supersedes the bones, like, really, really quickly or whatever in there, like... Yeah, so true. I mean, spoiler alert, at one point, like, one of their, like, one of the bloods uh, dies, um, you know, like, midway through the film, basically. And, um, you know, it's not true, you know. <laughs> it's not as tragic. It's not exactly mourned. <laughs> there are great performances, like, the sort of camaraderie between the... You That's get the, the thing, feeling man, that they're... these, like, men have, like, known each other for ages and are, like happy to be performing together and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Clark Peters. Oh, the Wire alumni. Yeah, Delroy Lindo's worked. I mean, he's in Clockers. Um, he's in Malcolm X. You're right, you're right, though. They, I guess the whole point is about their, like, bonds as, like, bloods, mm-hmm. as, like, brothers. But is it it's sort of... They all have their own like individual stories them. and, like, what's happened to them since this, like, serious experience that they shared 50 years ago or whatever. But in those opening scenes which are like very kind of ordinary or like the kind of scenes that you have to have in any kind of like film like this or whatever of just like hangout scenes yeah i think they're, they're like really successful in establishing felt, the yeah. dynamics yeah 100 sure, sure. and those kind of scenes are like never the, the good parts <laughs> beyond just what spike and his actors do Terence Blanchard once again provides a very imaginative scoring. Um, none of his soundtracks are ever the same because of the nature of his partnership with Spike Lee. He always asks him to do slightly different things. Mm. Still quite Trumpy though. <laughs> <laughs> really good score though. For sure. And the use of sort of contemporary music as well. Yeah, it's really. Um... This film has a really interesting relationship with the very famous album "What's Going On" by Marvin Gaye. Um, they use a lot of music from that album and they also use got to give it up the heavily lawsuited song from the live in london record but another brilliant moment in this film is when they're walking around singing what's happening brother towards the end of the film the album was released in like 71 and was inspired by like marvin Gaye's brother coming back from vietnam and having had this crazy experience 
um and that record took on like a huge sort of like generational weight because i guess everyone was listening to it and it was one of his biggest records as well as being like one of the more ambitious ways to put together like a studio album at motown records um it's a real like one song album or whatever yeah crazy. but it's interesting how that record has so much resonance and I guess you really get the feeling that it was resonant to the characters themselves coming back from Vietnam and how it's all their favorite record and how that takes up so much space on the soundtrack. The use of the acapella of the title track is like crazy. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, that's a great scene. For sure, it's just really powerful and like really, I guess, soulful. It like utilizes the soulfulness of that music in like a very like powerful way yeah one of the best film soundtracks from recent times they're usually so unimaginative and have so little to say but spike lee always makes it an interesting part of his films I feel. well yeah big time i guess the film has a lot to communicate and it does have like an instructional purpose to it in the way that a lot of his films have like a very deliberate message something you need to know walking out of the film the characters have like dialogue scenes that are very like explicative yeah very expositional dialogue yeah for um, sure. the scene where they're talking about crispus attucks the first person to die in the american war of independence who was a black soldier it's like he's reading off the wikipedia page where he's like hey man don't forget about this guy and it has like the the still of him or Lars style they just paste it straight in it's like a very didactic form of filmmaking also a big part of uh black landsman i guess yeah for sure i was thinking about like uh the history of the black lives matter like as like an organization and and i was like oh when he made black hands of and then I was like, oh, yeah, obviously, because it's like, Charlotte, like oh. Charlottesville, it's 2017. Actually, I, like, yeah, rewatching the ending of Black Handsman is just like, and, you know, that that really is like that. It seems so, like, weaponized and, like, like newsy, but, like, that is, like, <laughs> sensationalized, I guess. But, like, that is the political climate. And, like, so, so little has changed that, I, yeah, it really lends to film, like, salience that it would have without without it being like such a political and because Spike Lee is such a direct filmmaker mo- he, moment or... he does have the ability to like actually be instructive educational tell viewers stuff they're not going to hear from the news anyway for sure and yeah I mean and, and again that extends to like the question of like representation and like mm-hmm. he has been for the last four decades steadily putting out films that sort of platform these these concerns or presage these concerns for sure um one of my favorite films something i revisited recently because it's on youtube and is also one of the the spike lee films where he gets his character to just discuss theory straight up as he does in the sort of arguably bait dialogue scenes in this film is uh get on the bus from 1996 which is about stagecoach style sort of like using a traveling vehicle a bus on the way to the million man march on Washington in the late 90s that was organised by Farrakhan. Yeah, the year before uh, the film came out. Right. So, like, basically straight afterwards, yeah. they dramatised it in this crazily, like, as you say, extremely dialogic way. Where Every character whole... represents a different, like... Yeah, for sure. It's very much so, like, a play where, yeah. like, the whole time... All these, Chaucer, like, if all you these, will. Like, yeah, yeah. All, I mean, it's. I guess it's important to note and this is something that extends to a lot, a lot of Spike's films that um, very few ladies. The, the, yeah, the perspectives and it's a very like masculine sphere, and also a very specific sort of masculine sphere, I guess that he's um, illu- illuminating. He does uh, have the like thirty second scene with a woman in that film where 
you know, one woman is like, why aren't there any women? I guess it was a big issue at the time around it or whatever, like how it was exclusionary. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, they had to organise like what was like the million person march or the (laughs) um, (laughs) maybe the same way that the Vietnamese are treated in the Five Bloods, potentially. (laughs) The fight, anti-racism is a global struggle, you know. Um, and all these things intersect. You don't need me to tell you that shit. I feel, yeah, I guess it is. It, that's exactly the thing. It's the the lack of intersectionality in these films. Um, as uh, we watched Tongues on Tide for Film Club, mm-hmm. and after that, I watched um, uh, ethnic ethnic notions. ethnic notions, which is really good. And you know, I guess Spike has grappled with blackface as a phenomenon in in bamboozled, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, I was reading like a paper by Marlon Riggs, the the filmmaker that made those films, and you know, I guess he's like a queer. It's like queer black, you know, not really on the same level as today's. Like, I guess that's the point. This paper is called Black Macho Revisited, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, it's about how you know it's it's, it's from the early nineties, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time as Marlon Riggs was making these like very specific documents of I guess like an eight a real like marginalized community spikes mm. like perpetuating and it, to a certain extent constructing with his like collaborations with like Nike a certain form of male identity which is you know I guess in today's the, parlance would be called toxic <laughs> and the Mars Blackmon character from the Nike commercials one of the sort of I've, I'm holding my fingers up here for like inverted commas but like categories of black masculinity that Spike Lee explored in his debut feature the extremely problematic she's got to have it available on Netflix which you can all check out if you want to see a film that I thought was kind of cool and like Truffaut-esque for the start and then just like insanely troubling for yeah the for sure very, very indebted on an aesthetic level to like you know, Jim Jarmusch yeah. and that sort of indie American filmmaking in that time. But yeah, as you said, it, it, it does take like a very troubling turn. And again, like, uh, I, I don't know, it seems like facile to be like, I've been on JSTOR reading, you know, articles from the early 90s from like queer or like feminist perspectives, which like indict Spike. Tongues on Tide was like literally pioneering. Yeah in the way that like black filmmakers have like been constantly marginalized or like the idea of like black filmmakers like barely even existing now we have like far more black filmmakers and Spike Lee is still like very deep into his career or whatever obviously it's ongoing and like we want to hear more and more and more stories this is interesting right because yeah we watched we watched Bamboozle for Film Club recently and like even though that film is like mad prescient like and there's been a book by Ashley Clark published on it quite recently and like people it constantly keeps coming back back and back even though at the time it was made the critical consensus from like broadsheet journalists from like what I was reading in America is like people being like oh Spike Spike Lee is like usually really on point but like no one does blackface anymore so like whereas I found it to be like it is probably a film the most that, challenging film I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a film that like thrives on cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I think. Yeah, um, and that's also, yeah, it's an extremely challenging film. Maybe his best film. 
yeah, I really rate it. It's shot in like very turn of the century digital video as well. It gives it like a super Lynchian feel. But it's also as well to... as having this mad. But get yeah, on the bus was shot like that as well, and it isn't as like well, displeasurable. Yeah, you but know. that looks like a Beck video or something. A hundred percent. Yeah. Or like the, <laughs> the Smashing Pumpkins, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Just yeah. like some like extremely saturated like desert landscape. Yeah. Um, Get on the Bus is a great film, actually. As, it's worth checking a, out, definitely. As, like, an exploration of, like, a specific, like, political moment, the Million Man March, mm. and, like, all the sort of psychology... Well, that, I guess that's the problem. It's not all the psychologies that relate to it. But it does strive for, like, a sort of plurality of voices. I also thought The Five Bloods was one of his best films, though. Spiley's really good for, like looking the audience in the eye he always has like fourth wall breaking or whatever but in this film it maybe because of the moment and because everyone was watching at home loads of us were watching it together oh yeah we watched this as like a bonus film club installment um yeah very rare for a film to feel so urgent yeah also be so it's an epic, man. I'd, yeah. Compared to the Miracle of Saint Anna, which is which is definitely his second most epic film, mm-hmm. um, in I guess just in terms of like scope, like you know the weight of history or whatever. Running time and and well, running time. Malcolm um, so, X is his most epic film. I would um, argue. Yeah, Malcolm X is obviously really long as well and like uh, epic in the sort of Scorsese vein mm-hmm. um, or Francis Ford Coppola. You know, it really feels like. Goodfellas oh, or yeah. like The Godfather. The scenes with Elijah um, Muhammad in that film look exactly the same as the Brando scenes. I and... think The Five Bloods like synthesizes his like auteurist principles mm. and like individuality on like an aesthetic and political level with that like epic grandeur. Even though it's really long, it's super entertaining and really sort of synthesizes all the good elements of his like ethic, I guess. <laughs> Next, we're going to talk about a film which we were both looking forward to quite a bit. I, I definitely was. Hugely. Fanny Lied Delivered, written and directed by Thomas Clay. As soon as I saw that apostrophe in the title in the London Film Festival programme, I was like, oof, <laughs> this is going to be it. And then you got Maxine Peake in the Quaker costume in the uh, promo image. And I'm like, this yeah, film. Yeah, with a shotgun strapped her back. Great. And it says postmodern Western. I'm like, great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thomas Clay was explicitly trying to sort of tap into the, both the Western tradition and use England's sort of turbulent 17th century history of the English Civil War and all the religious groups that sprang up in the time, like post Reformation sects, as sort of inspirations or, you know, a jumping off point. And it is it's useful to keep in the forefront of your mind that these kinds of people were the people who would go on to be the pioneers in inverted commas, the, the, the ward bond and wagon masters of the, <laughs> of the genre that we love For sure. so well, you know, like <laughs> it's a post Western and a proto Western, but it's also just a, a film set in English history 
with slightly more anachronisms than you would expect, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're setting a story in the countryside, either in the medieval or early modern periods, they inherently bear the characteristics of the Western because they're about, like, marginal communities that live in isolation. They're sort of on frontiers. Frontier society, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the, but it's all right because it's in Ameri- Shropshire, so it's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's less abstract <laughs> for. Uh... <laughs> but I guess like the American legal tradition as well of um, you know the sheriffs and all all the sort of procedures and even like the posse and the the mob. Yeah. Um, this is all from England's practical legal tradition. For sure, um, when there's when there's six people around and one of them represents the law, that is yeah. the sort of framework that. <laughs> You'll see in your next episode of Film Grace, but you'll also see for the next few minutes. I, I Let's guess talk about the characters. A, yeah, so. just to synopsize briefly then, it is like nominally and practically a, a tale of female emancipation. Fanny Lai, as I said, played by Maxine Peake. She lives on a farm with her husband, played by Charles Dance, and their young son, sort of mist-filled valley. I thought it was like a cool set and like well... They built the set themselves and they... um. They made that camera float all the way around it. The, the, the cinematographer, Georgos Arvantis, who's worked uh, previously with Theo Angelopoulos, and, you know... It's like a big daddy of, made, of Greek cinema. Yeah, made some beautiful films. But this relentless floating camera, especially in the establishment of the space that we're going to see for the next 120 minutes, it just reminded me of, like, The Revenant or something peak like that. <laughs> we will come back to aesthetics just to... But just to go, sorry, just to go back then. No, this is fine. Um, this is absolutely fine. Their domain is penetrated by the outside world yeah. in the form of this young couple. We first see them in the very first scene running naked through the woods. Um, they basically gain the confidences of the, the Lie family through like pretenses being married and having served in the Civil War basically being like good christians or whatever uh um, g- quotation marks <laughs> putting it to the scots and the irish oh close quotation marks oh my god i mean yeah. at least they acknowledge that that's what the civil war was yeah. unlike yeah. english expansion in the 17th century was about or whatever but the appearance of of this couple uh heralds the eponymous deliverance of fanny light as the sort of patriarchal religious uh structures that oppress her are challenged, you know, by these satanic, diabolical, deviant agents. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. There's a whole lot of speechifying that comes between that setup and the deliverance. But I think there is this whole because it's a Western in inverted commas, it has the very small cast all taking on huge archetypal roles to the point where Freddie Fox's character, who's like where he makes a lot of speeches in the film but he has a sort of moment where i thought he was going to reveal that he was actually irish and like that was his whole agenda or whatever but no there's like yeah he's satanic but also rural but he also teaches maxine peak's character to read so (laughs) yeah it really struck me as like how a sort of monk would describe like the rabble, you know. Okay. It seems to take the, like, extremely complicated religious principles, like, packed with these social imperatives, like, people, like, disenfranchised, like, dislocated, alienated from the land, and, as you said, the sort of political, like... Suggestion. An- Anglo-centrism of, of the 
it just seems to completely remove like all these layers of meaning and just make it so pantomime -y. And yeah, as you said, that it's just packed full of speechifying. And I understand that like these historical figures like prophesying and, you know, being like really... Evangelical. Like, yeah, and just like really like delivering like sermons like you know just that's a as, part of yeah as like life. your sort of everyday experience but it just seems so totalitarian in how it's conceived here I... but that feels like one of my favorite parts of two films with a contemporary setting both a field in england and the witch mm. both of which have speechifying you cannot deny that in either of those films but the dialogue is so much more worked into the method of the film and the approach of the film you don't get characters saying i guess or laced with shrooms in either oh of those God. films i wish yeah. this film was silent that's a hundred percent why because charles yeah. dance was killing it as like a silent film actor facial expressions some like, virgin spring shit you yeah a hundred percent oh it's not silent but that's like a terse um like stoic performance that like I don't know, you don't need to... It's so overbearing, and the music obviously complements that. And you also can't really hear what he's saying because the sound mixing is so bad. You can't tell whether someone's narrating a scene or speaking within a scene. And Thomas Clay's, like, original scores, like, only impinges on the atmosphere of the film. So true, man. They shot this shit in 2016, and for three years it's in post, and what were they doing at the time? Writing this dead-ass score... And then putting an extra narration to, yeah. to for, for characters to say this was the moment where everything changed in my life. My, this this was the moment where like everything I knew I learned to be wrong. And you just get that from the start in, in every scene, in punctuating yeah, the yeah. breaks and not even the breaks, just the breaks between dialogues. Like it's crazy. Like yeah. Just to go back to the witch again, I think that you're, you're that it really is the most salient analogy mm -hmm. in that they're both films about puritanical religion in the 17th century. They're about um, settler colonialism, and, and you about, know. <laughs> um, yeah, and about the family unit and how it relates to the outside world. Yeah. In the witch, uh, honestly, it's one of my favourite modern films. I think it's a masterpiece. It actualizes the popular imagination of the diabolical mm -hmm. in the early modern period, like. Goya paintings of witches or like the hammer of witches the the sort of textbook on dealing with heresy this film actualizes the most superficial interpretation of the like social problem of religious radicalism in the 17th century and that's like what its horror is i've seen it described as a folk horror it's a bourgeois terror horror at the folk <laughs> it's it's funny games or yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's not like an engagement of the issues that were there at the time or whatever when the when the toenail of christ is presented it's not a macguffin i mean i looked at it i thought it was like, it looked like the last bit of hash in the uk or whatever <laughs> before before the drought set in but things in the film only had a significance to the characters when they're told that it's significant or whatever and that becomes part of like the sexual framework of the film as well and like the idea of like freddie fox's character teaching maxine peaks like fanny lie how to read and how to emancipate herself supposedly but just to go back to the sexual element because i feel like it's important to yeah talk it's, about. it's a huge part um, of the film in the first scene we see freddie fox and tanya reynolds's characters like running through the woods uh naked and um i guess for 
made for people that studied the period, the first uh, connotation would be like the idea of uh, going naked as a sign. Mm-hmm. This, uh, I guess, sort of hard to describe <laughs> ritual behavior, like performative street theater of like demonstrating your religious faith through like, you know, going out on a loincloth and uh, replicating the instance. Supplicating yourself. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a big controversy. I can't remember the guy's name where he, like, on Easter Sunday, he go, or on, uh, like, Palm Sunday, he, like, goes in and everyone was like, that's not, that's not, you can't ride into a horse in a loincloth on Sunday. It's the worst day to do um, it. Yeah, you all. can't do that. The well, film invokes this, but then it's, it, when, well, when the characters are, are indicted as, like, uh, sort of satanic deviants who are like having orgies in the pub you think oh it's propaganda mm. like oh it's like a this is like the characters within the film not understanding the sort of worldview of it but ultimately it does devolve into that sort of like orgiastic stereotype of you I see just, ah, it's so annoying film craze <laughs> listeners you see this is why it's actually better to know about english history as opposed to just English history as it's represented through film. Because when I saw these people nakedly running towards the 17th century domicile, I was like, oh, great. This is going to be influenced by the draftsman's contract, one of the, <laughs> one of the best English films of all time. And that film has, like, that does a really good job of, like, establishing itself within the, like, land-owning, like, upper-class perspective where these people coming naked as a sign you don't even know what's going on with them it's not a part of the story it's just like a thing that's going on and that's like that class divorcement or like alienation that you're forced to reckon with in fanny light delivered but it doesn't make any sense because all these characters take on such a symbolic significance and the extensive dialogue that they're like throwing at each other it not reconciled, like... Yeah, big <laughs> Should we turn back to the aesthetics? Because I don't want to jump into it too soon, but I actually think my experience of it aesthetically is a good sort of analogy for how I felt mm. about it. Because um, at the beginning, I felt... I don't know, you sort of derided the floating camera, but for me, I felt like it was very painterly and it seemed to be tapping into that sort of... But as it moved on, though, and the characters started talking more... <laughs> You know, I mean, they're doing it straight from the beginning, from the narration. You're like, give me the floating camera back, like, bring it back. Yeah, it just moves from painting to cartoon, like, so quickly. It has it has less analysis than a fucking woodblock on a broadside ballad. And, yeah, I think, like, the, the law enforcement tropey characters... We haven't even in, talked about just, it. Just, it's because, so pantomime like, yes, mother, like, oh, come on, I just think it's ludicrous. What was he called? Um, I can't read that. Um, Perry Fitzpatrick he was one of the best performances in the film if this film were to be a silent film he would be like the star yeah just like lots of like mugging off and stuff but yeah we hadn't even talked about and like I guess Vincent Price Witchfinder General like does set a huge precedent for like a kind of exploitation film set in Shropshire with like a rogue agent of the state or Cromwell but it's such a small part he just like turns up at the end and he's actually the villain and like there's no relationship between the sort of patriarchal forces represented by charles dance and the state forces they're totally different to each other the state forces represented by the conservatory 
I guess they're both like, uh, they're both witch finders though. They're both puritanical in like the most uh, caricature sense. I guess this also ties to my analysis of it as like a sort of libertarian tract mm -hmm. um, where like the state is bad. You know, I, I think it's easy to portray the state as bad in like a historical film, especially in the context of, you know, dealing with heresies. I, I did think it was like every social group represented in the film was misapprehended and mishandled. But these these John Ford films that we've been watching, which are so allegorical and every character like bears the weight, like before they even say a word in the film, it's like... There you know are, what they're going to say. You know what they represent. Yeah. And yeah. Well, you could say the same about Bergman films or something like that. But for this thing, it works. But the characters really have so much they have to get out to, like, justify the incredibly simple-minded, like, representation of politics in the 17th century as wrought by Thomas Clay. All I know is that he writes a terrible soundtrack. Yeah, like I, I, was, 11, I was hoping bro. we'd get back to the music because uh, it's just astonishing to think that, a, that, that he spent so much time agonising over this when it's basically Inception. It's just like the baitest form of uh, film music you can imagine. And I don't know, I love studying and like looking at early music and I think it just like... it does. They used the instruments, but... Watching the credits, it was crazy. Like, most of the credits is, like, crediting the consort of, like, players playing, <laughs> Well, like... there's only eight actors in it. So beyond that, it's like, Thomas Clay did everything else. And then it's like, cornered Thomas Clay. Um, bass viol, Thomas Clay. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was old. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's not. not. He's not. He's not. That, I thought the person I thought was Thomas Clay was... Giorgos Avantis <laughs> just in production stills or whatever but yeah I guess the music is a huge part of the film well it signposts everything I mean the narration obviously serves that purpose as well but it's just constantly um, I mean I think he is tapping into that sort of filmic tradition it's, hey, it's obviously he's trying Ennio to Morricone died yesterday you yeah. know and like he is one of the greatest film composers of all time and he's that because he signposts your way through every film that but he's there are no scored. like motifs in this film you know I couldn't hum one tune from that's what made it feel the most postmodern to me was that the soundtrack like went to like it sounded like John Ford soundtrack it sounded like Sons of the Pioneers Dimitri Tiomkin like <laughs> so, okay the cavalry is coming in like now we're going to see the real scope of western imperialism from like puritan patriarchy to whatever maxine pete was trying to talk about i don't know i'm not <laughs> oh my god but, but that that could have been cool you know that could have been yeah. like it's a huge opportunity when you're making films about history and about patriarchy when you're making films like maxine <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> For me, it's a missed opportunity because I fantasize about having a set like that, the costumes, all this shit, so I can go out laughing like Jack Ford, and, chewing your handkerchief. And, yeah, and and do it, do it. You know, excavate these stories that are, that are fascinating and nuanced and complicated, and bring like a element of like that they're so germane as well and i just feel like what is the story of this it is nominally a story of female emancipation but it comes about in the most i don't know it's an exploitation film though. yeah it's, yeah it is like she's not an agent throughout the story she has so little dialogue in a film with so much dialogue like 
the Maxine Peake character actually speaks very little and it's mostly in narration when she does speak. Yeah, completely passive as a un, until the end where she be, going, when she is um, go and, um, when do, she's Django Django stuff. Unchained or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a ridiculous film, you know, blowing the budget on the CGI duck. When we do the Mason and Dixon TV adaptation, that's where our budget's going. That's gold. Yeah. That's gold for you investors. But it's just a disappointment. I think I don't mean to like. Maybe this is just a generic framework for the filmmaker behind the great ecstasy of Robert Carmichael to you know make a violent film set in English history as opposed to make like a horrific film it's just window dressing like mise-en-scene and also they cut away from all the the hacks you don't see one incision in this film there's always the like 70s style like cut away so you see like a facial reaction when someone stabs someone or something like that and it's like oh i feel like it's the sort of audio violence at the end and we definitely as viewers get to participate in that but maybe i misremember but yeah you're right i think um dissatisfaction and disappointment are, de- are definitely the the main uh sort of emotions coming out, and it just, coming out of this apart from blue story man i i've hated <laughs> every uk film yeah. Even like the films I've kind of liked, films like Beats or In Fabric, which I think were deeply flawed and like really disappointing. You know, I don't pff, British films. I don't, we had a off off mic chat about. I I think Little Joe is a British film, and you really like that. You you don't yeah, think I it is because it has a continental director. But would you say that I watched Widows on the weekend? Would you say that? Yeah, that's, that's a good British would film. Would you yeah. say that that's a British film? I think that was yeah, the last. Okay. Yeah, maybe the last good British film. Yeah. <laughs> Can I, it's not about the director. It's an auteurist <laughs> film podcast, isn't it? Cool. I guess to wrap up this episode of digital viewings, mm. maybe we can talk about the film club. Yeah, the little film club still going strong. Three months into quarantine and we're still going around programming films for each other. Yeah, for sure. We've both done our second films by this point. Yes. <laughs> you picked uh, Cemetery of Splendour a couple of weeks ago. Very happy to watch it, got to say. Yeah, the first uh, worst ethical film I've, I've seen, I still... I, you talk about Uncle Boomy frequently, I know I need to watch that one. This was pretty singular, I guess, as far as the things I've seen, but it seems like a sort of a piece with, with that, at least. For sure, people, I think when it came out, a lot of people talked about it as being like a sort of him playing his greatest hits, but it's quite unique among his filmography in certain ways for me. It was definitely the least jokes, even though it still had like a somewhat comedic tone in certain Yeah, a few and like, like a fantastic moments, you know. Premise, but um, this one really like, left me like some strobe film or something it leaves you with the look of horror on this woman's face as like the march of history progresses and it was way compared to like tropical malady or uncle boomy it was a lot more like devastating upsetting but also has this like incredibly placid visual style that isn't really like any anyone else that i could think of really amazing settings i'm really looking forward to seeing memoria which is his first film shot outside of thailand and his first film in english has got tilda swinton the omnipresent tilda swinton in it that's coming out at the end of the year can't wait for that it's set like on a um in like a school i guess that's been like repurposed as a military hospital and it has that sort of febrile presence of like a militaristic culture but like really it's all about interiority yeah. and like spirituality 
really moving film and like you know crazy visually as well I guess we'd need to talk about you could just describe the scenes you know and how pleasing they are forever like there are lots of very cool bits of photography and cinematography their editing as well like the general effect is just like you know you've used the word like haunted it's very very much that Derrida sort of stuff I guess but also a really unique approach I love a pitch bong where it's ethical I love everything I've seen I'd even call him like maybe my favourite contemporary filmmaker great yeah I need to watch more of them if this is anything to go by I mean I thought it was fantastic check it out Sam, you programmed Edvard Munch by Peter Watkins. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it for ages. We often talk about doing an episode about painters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, one of my favourite filmic subjects. I guess because a film about a painter is not just, like, engaging on a meta level of, like, aesthetics, but it's also, you know, they're invariably, like, psychological studies, and this is very much so that. It's also, like, a crazy experimental docudrama it was made in the 70s, aired on like Norwegian TV. They really, they struggled to fund it. It was ultimately abhorred by the um, by the network, mm-hmm. and you know they didn't like back it after it was made because it is quite radical. But it's just an astonishing film. My favorite, my my favorite filmmaker. I don't think you can really call him an actor filmmaker anymore. He hasn't made one for 20 years. But yeah, I. I it blew me away. You, you didn't actually make it. It's three and a half hours long. And, uh, I, I fell asleep. You, you didn't make it into the, the post-film group chat. <laughs> no. The one time the one time I didn't make it all the way through, I think. But I was loving it. The sort of neorealist photography or whatever. Like, it looked like La Terra Tremor in terms of how much like they were using real people from these real areas, situating them in a sort of historical moment, but having them like directly communicate with the viewer. For sure. And the way um, they... They do communicate verbally, I guess, like mm. his film, The Commune. It's really about getting the act- actors to sort of learn about and sort of interact with that history and to then articulate it. And I guess people might find it anachronistic, but... But it's that like doubled all, with, all like... All historical work is, like, anachronistic, sure, you know, sure. or, like, distanced. And I think this is, like, the perfect way to, like, interact with it on, like, a... In terms of, like film and like getting to the heart of the matter as well yeah i mean when you have that coupled with watkins's narration which is like he's Very talking about terse. interesting shit you know he's not just trying to tell like or he does literally do that but like <laughs> there's he has, there's so much to discuss and so many ways into the story and also the way that he can use he can sort of analyze pictorially the artwork itself as well in a way that you don't really get with like a lot of films about painters more to come we'll we'll come back to it i feel when we do talk about painters on film grades yeah for sure it's definitely like a rich topic to, to explore i definitely want to do a scene it was great though i'm gonna finish it ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> what else have we had we watched kinji fukusaku's battles without honor or humanity a sort of 70s japanese yakuza film with an incredible pictorial sense and just the style is just crazy as well as being a sort of very complicated like godfather-esque like i mean it's part one of five of a sort of epic saga it starts in like hiroshima and it's just about the development of these sort of like criminal gangs out of prison and like the betrayals and yeah for sure i mean it marks every character <laughs> for death right at the beginning yeah with like a freeze frame and you know like a 
like they're exactly they're like the Irishman. And they it? died. Does it do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've forgotten that. Yeah, you're you're right. Like on a visual level, inter- it's extremely. I mean, it's a chaotic story. A lot is going on. There are lots of characters, but the photography is extremely fluid and dynamic, and yeah, just a crazy effect super high octane it's a really bloody film as well for sure and you know i guess it is an exploitation film but it does have the sort of gravitas of like a i guess like a historical tract oh yeah they're discussing really interesting stuff throughout and like the dialogue scenes are as crazy as like the sort of exploitation like red paint scenes yeah for sure yeah i loved it but it was like insanely chaotic and like really showed like how tumultuous this time was in like post-war Japan or whatever for criminality to like flourish whether it's in American sort of prisoner of war situations or just like in cities that are being rebuilt it was sick I'm gonna watch all the other five yeah I can't wait to get get involved with the rest of them it was really entertaining there's been more as well Shan had us watch V oh yeah that was crazy this like 60s Soviet horror not really seen anything like that um (laughs) really unique i guess it was almost like a sort of mgm like studio thing like lots of like painting but like they were all like bruegels and then you know the story is that this like monk has to hold a vigil for like a young woman has to spend three nights in a haunted house yeah 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 yeah. and it just gets progressively scarier and scarier to the point where like i didn't think it was going to get that much scarier but then i was screaming at the screen yeah with like really creative inventive uh, like practical effects and you know camera work I guess a lot of like back projection and stuff like that as well extremely like disorientating them. like scary very like I guess of its time with a quite specific like colour palette but Certainly. yeah just like a fascinating film it was only like 80 minutes as well and I feel like we watched it like bang in the middle of like the heaviest news cycle and it was just like you know I guess like a served its purpose as just like escapism you know sure <laughs> yeah i thought it was great brandon friend of the show in sydney australia who's been getting up at half six in the morning to watch <laughs> watch on discord with us legendary behavior had us watch l'argent Rob- oh. robert bresson's final film unbelievable watch yeah i mean pff, we need to do a, a, a proper Bresson episode again, yeah yeah i, I want think. to but just i guess such a specific form of uh, like showing events happen sure. in his films, like a real like grammatical. But by that uh, point in his, he he had his style yeah, worked so out. So codified. I feel like the story in that is a lot more cynical than like some of the other the other ones. That sure, I've, I've there's seen. no redemption Although, in this. You know, yeah, I guess it's a Dostoevsky adaptation or whatever. Also, probably like a one of the more simple sort of jump off ways into understanding his style or whatever through objects, gestures hands and yeah. facial expressions you know For that's sure. what this film is all about and also the last 10 minutes of the robert bresson career is like unbelievably harrowing and like yeah so uncharacteristic <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah fantastic film mm. great pick from brandon honestly it's been so long since we've done a podcast we've watched a shitload of we're in the second stuff. year of film grays now <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Solid, week in, week out. Join the Little Film Club if you fancy. It's a nice community. Yeah, the more the merrier. Yeah, nice chats. And then you can get a chance to get us to watch it as well. <laughs> what else we had? We had Tongues Untied. 
program by Cameron Young, which was great. We mentioned yeah, it earlier. Yeah, really blew me away. Um, as I guess, just like a document, just astonishing, radical filmmaking, formally and extremely poetical. Yeah, and like put me onto ethnic notions, as I said, which was yeah very like prescient. People are still having to grapple with that sort of genealogy of racism in, in America. It's a uh, and here, obviously, diff- obviously a different tradition, but. Well, yeah, because here we act like it's, it's reconciled or whatever. Or it never <laughs> yeah, existed exactly. in the first place. For sure. We also watched Bamboozled. Thank you, Paul, for getting me to finish this film. Yeah. It was, uh, I think, my favourite film that we've watched in Film Club. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> Just unbelievable. All the plot, the most deaths rap group, like revolutionary rap group. The Mau Mau. The Mau Mau's. He packs it all in, man. And it ends in like a, again, like a crazy montage. Mm. I guess we've already discussed his use of montage, but... Never used better than in that film. I guess because you have an actual character confronting that footage and like you see their understanding being played out or whatever and their horror. Bamboozled is amazing. Yeah, makes for a good double bill with ethnic notions, which like graphs with the same um, subject matter. But I guess Bamboozled's montage um, does that in like four minutes or whatever. Um, but yeah, for, it's just a crazy film. And it's like, as you, you were saying, it's like at the time it was, I guess, maligned because people were like, it's unbelievable or whatever. But I mean, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. It is, it, that is ridiculous, I feel. And insanely prescient. But I guess it's never, there's never the time for that film to come out where people would be like, yeah, I am ready to accept what this film is trying to tell me in no uncertain terms, you know. I mean, it has a complicated thesis as well. So it's sure. really, you know. One of his more sort of merciless films. Yeah, it's really. Um, Nobody yeah, is safe. In. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, man. Apart from the, the one white member of that rap group is the only one who doesn't get killed by the <laughs> For sure. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It tackles its subject matter on a truly structural level and interrogates it from ev- and indicts the agents from like every side. Yeah, it's just. I need to read that Ashley Clark book about it. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, I'm sure it's great. We're gonna watch Scoob next week. <laughs> Ollie's pick. I can't wait. Yeah. Tune in, dear listener. Thanks for listening to Film Grays. Yeah, it's good to be back doing them. Indeed. Oh, the next one's just gonna be. I, I, in part, I feel we can account for our absence because we have been gearing towards like a pretty big sort of project i guess i can't wait yeah film gray's ford fiesta the john (laughs) ford filmography next time i've been emma i'm sarah thanks for listening lots of love